And Lord, as we come to your word, Lord, we come as beggars who are starving. And we thank you that your word has an infinite supply of spiritual nourishment for our souls. So we pray, Lord, that by the Holy Spirit working in us today, that we would receive your word, that we would understand it, that we would be convicted by it, that it would transform us into the likeness of Christ. May this time glorify him as we turn to your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, please turn to John chapter 3 for the last time, at least in this series. Uh, We've been studying this book for a long time, and uh, this chapter for a long time. And this will be our our final lesson in John chapter 3. We will be moving on to John chapter 4 in two weeks. We'll be in Psalm 13 next week. So we're going to be looking at John chapter 3, verses 31 to 36 today. Every prosecuting attorney recognizes the value of the witness, particularly having what they call a star witness. We've probably all heard that term. There's a difference we recognize between just a witness and a star witness. A star witness is someone whose testimony is so powerful it virtually guarantees that the prosecutor will win his case with the judge and jury. But what is it that makes a star witness so convincing? What is it that makes their testimony so powerful, such a powerful part of the prosecutor's case? And I would say that there are actually several attributes that we would surely all agree Uh, make the difference between just your ordinary witness and what you would call a star witness. They must have, first of all, first-hand observation and or expertise of the thing to which they testify. Uh, Number two, they must be uh, able to testify, and not only able, but third, willing to testify. And number four, they must have credibility. If you get somebody up on the stand who is less than virtuous, somebody who has a history of being dishonest, of twisting the truth, of being paid off. Obviously, they don't have any credibility, so credibility is definitely one of the criteria that we would look for in a star witness. But there have been numerous times when witnesses who did seal the deal for the prosecution have actually turned out to have lied in their testimony And these cases are not hard to find. Uh, You know, type it into your favorite search engine and you'll uncover countless stories of star witnesses who were less than honest in their testimony before the court. I found myself reading one story this week about an innocent man who was actually put on death row in Louisiana for 30 years due in large part to the testimony of a so-called star witness. Uh, 30 years after this guy's conviction, A confidential informant came forward with information which implicated another man for the murder of which he was convicted. But the article reads this. It says, At the trial, the state was unable to call any eyewitnesses to the crime, nor was it able to produce a murder weapon. Instead, Ford, the man who spent 30 years on death row, was convicted largely on the testimony of a witness who was not a detached observer. She was the girlfriend of another man initially suspected of the murder. And it goes on to say she eventually confessed. She said, quote, I did lie to the court. I lied about it all. 
And this is exactly why the ideal witness must have all four of those characteristics that I just mentioned. They must have been an eyewitness or they must be an expert in the matters of which they're testifying. They must be able to testify. They must be willing to testify and they must have credibility. In an age when there are so many voices on social media, on the news, on the TV, all around us, so many voices claiming to speak truth. Most people just aren't sure who to believe anymore or what to believe anymore or if anything at all can be believed anymore. But just because there are a multitude of voices giving us conflicting truth claims doesn't mean that we shouldn't trust or listen to anyone. Rather, it means that we should exercise discernment on a regular basis. This is a great time in history to learn how to be a discerning person, right? To be intentionally cautious when it comes to believing or disbelieving what somebody says. I would say that keeping these four criteria for a witness in mind will be really helpful in terms of figuring out um, and filtering out untrustworthy testimony. So today, as we continue in our study of the gospel according to John, we should do so in light of the purpose of the entire book of the gospel according to John, and that is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. In fact, as we continue in our study today, what we'll see in our two years is that John actually presents these very four criteria that I just mentioned to you as the reasons that people not only should repent and trust in Christ, but must repent and trust in Christ. They must repent of every ounce of disbelief they have in Christ. They must repent of every ounce of trust they have in themselves and their own goodness unto salvation and to put all of their trust for salvation on the Lord Jesus Christ alone. In an age in which absolute truth is purported to be a myth, an age in which universal truth has been abandoned, the idea of there being a universal truth has been abandoned, the culture would have all of us believe that all religions and all religious leaders are essentially the same. Because one truth isn't greater than somebody else's truth, as if truth is a private thing and not a universal absolute thing. Aren't Buddha and Muhammad and Krishna and Joseph Smith, Confucius, and Moses, aren't they all the same as Jesus asks the culture? No, they are not. No, they are not. And as we go forth into the world as agents of the Great Commission, that is Christ's instruction to go and make disciples, we must understand what exactly sets Jesus both apart and above every other voice claiming to be a voice of truth. And that's what we're going to see today. And now it's fitting and, and very appropriate that the third chapter of John's gospel, which is unquestionably one of the, the greatest chapters in all of Scripture, would conclude this way, by presenting a, a rock-solid case for believing in Christ. This chapter has been all about the way that salvation works, the way that God designed it. From the start of the chapter, Jesus worked to convince Nicodemus that the righteousness that Nicodemus had or thought he had was not good enough to get him into heaven. Instead, he revealed to us, Jesus revealed to us that you must be born again. 
Then he taught of God's great gift to the world that he so loved in sending his only unique son to die as a substitute on behalf of all who would look to him in faith, imparting eternal life unto them, rescuing and redeeming them from perishing. But the question that this final passage that we're going to look at today is going to force us to ask ourselves is this. What do you personally think of Jesus? What do you make of his truth claims? What do you think of his witness? Who he claims to be? What he claims to have come to do, to accomplish? Because the way that you answer that question determines not only your current standing with God, not only your current relationship with God, but just as importantly, if not more importantly, it determines your eternal destiny. So John's going to present the case for why everyone should believe the testimony of Jesus. And he starts with this reason, because Jesus has firsthand information regarding God's plan of salvation. Let's look at verse 31 together. Verse 31 says, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. Now, it's good for us to see that this verse, this, this passage that we're looking at today, actually follows immediately after the testimony of John the Baptist. You'll recall that some of John the Baptist's disciples, uh, some of his followers, were getting really bent out of shape. They were envious. They were, they were jealous over the growing popularity of Jesus' ministry, as many people who were following John the Baptist were now following Jesus at this point. And that didn't sit well with some of John the Baptist's disciples. And so they come to him expressing, their concern, basically saying, do something to stop this Jesus guy from taking all your followers. And John responded humbly, telling them, that's the point. That's the point of my whole ministry. That's, that's the very purpose for which I've been ministering. And that he, John the Baptist, must decrease, this is what we see in verse 30, he must decrease while Christ must increase. The words that follow, which we're going to be looking at today, explain why we must decrease and why Christ must increase. But we should make note of the fact that most scholars actually believe that this is John the disciple, the author, who's writing, who's speaking at this point. Remember in the ancient Greek, there are no quotation marks. So one of the responsibilities of the translators is to figure out who's saying what, or is the author quoting somebody, or is the author elaborating on something that was said. Um, but what we see in this passage that we're looking at today uh, it does not sound like anything recorded anywhere else by John the Baptist. Uh, we see in this passage a very deep, uh, a very sophisticated, a very well-developed Christology um, that is an understanding of, of Christ and his nature and his being. Uh, and that's an understanding that's more advanced than anything John the Baptist ever says anyplace else uh, in all of uh, the scriptures where he's quoted. Um, so, that's one reason to, to suspect that this is not John the Baptist speaking, but this, this is John the, the Apostle elaborating on why Christ must increase. So with that said, I do agree that this is not a quote that should be attributed to John the Baptist. Personally, that's just my personal opinion. But no matter who said it, whether it's John the Baptist or John the Apostle, it is the inspired, it is the errant, it is the all-sufficient word of God given to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, through John's pen. 
So the first reason that we should believe Christ's testimony is because he is above all. He's not above some. He's not above most. He's above all. He's above the Pope. He's above Buddha. He's above Confucius. He's above Krishna. He's above Joseph Smith. He's above all the religious leaders of the world. They all pale in comparison to Jesus. He is above all. Jesus alone is supreme. Jesus alone is above all because Jesus alone is not of or from the earth. See, when any, any earthly religious leader speaks of heaven, they're speaking of a place that they have never personally been, a place they've never personally seen. But you can't say that of Jesus. And Jesus is the only one that you can't say that of. In fact, he's dwelled in heaven with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit for all of eternity. All these other religious leaders, they lack the element of either being an eyewitness or being a firsthand expert in the matters of which they are teaching. Now, that doesn't mean that absolutely everything that they say is necessarily wrong. It means that they are only right insofar as their witness, their testimony, aligns with Jesus' testimony. Jesus alone is supreme. And so at the very, very best, the witness of anyone else is only secondary. In this case, it seems reasonable to conclude that John the Apostle is actually contrasting the testimony of John the Baptist with the testimony of Jesus. He's not saying that John the Baptist is wrong. He's showing us that the testimony of even the greatest prophet, which Jesus said John the Baptist was, even the testimony of the greatest prophets is limited in comparison to the testimony of Jesus. Even the prophets of the Old Testament only had second-hand information. They only knew what God had chosen to reveal to them. And thus their understanding was not only second-hand, but it was only partial. But friends, one of the marks of a good teacher, a good religious leader, is that they point beyond themselves to the greatest possible being, the greatest possible truth, and that is Jesus. That is Jesus. Jesus, on the other hand, unlike the prophets who had secondhand knowledge, who had partial knowledge, Jesus was God incarnate. He was God in human flesh. The earth was not his origin. Heaven is where he came from. And because of where he's from, and because of who he is, and thus what he knows because of where he's been and who he is, he alone speaks truth on the matter without any possibility, without any possibility of even the smallest percentage of error on what he says. What, John, or what Jesus says here points us back to what Jesus had said earlier in the chapter, in John chapter 3. Look at verses 11 to 13, if you look up in your Bibles with me. Verses 11 to 13, Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and testify of what we have seen, and you do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, only Jesus can give us firsthand 
eyewitness testimony of what heaven is like and what's required to gain entry to heaven. A few years ago, a friend of mine um, actually asked me what I thought of the movie Heaven is for Real, which, if you know the story, it was based uh, on a book. The movie was based on a book that was written by a young boy who reportedly had died and gone to heaven and was then resuscitated. And this book was about what he saw when he supposedly went to heaven. And I told my friend that I actually think the boy's lying, which shocked, shocked her. Uh, how could you say that? How could you accuse this, this young boy of lying? And the answer was because several of the details in the book didn't align with what Scripture attests to about heaven. Uh, it didn't line up very well with the idea that only Christ can give an eyewitness testimony of heaven, if nothing else. But if you know the story of this book, if you know the history of this book, you know that years later, the boy and his mother came forward and confessed that the, books, the book was a hoax, that it was all a complete lie, that it was just all a fabricated lie under the pressure of his father. And they have done everything in their power to unpublish the book to no avail. It's still being published by a Christian publisher. And this is the problem with so-called extra-biblical revelation. In other words, revelation that's given by God, but it's not in Scripture. It comes from somebody who's outside of Scripture. If it's true, insofar as it lines up with Scripture, then why do we need it at all? If something's only true, insofar as it aligns with what the Bible says, then why do we need anything outside of the Bible? You see what I'm saying? Why not just rely entirely on what Scripture says? The London Baptist Confession of 1689 says this, in the very first paragraph of the very first chapter regarding the Scriptures, quote, the Holy Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible standard of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. It goes on to say, to preserve and propagate the truth better and to establish and comfort the church with greater certainty against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan in the world, the Lord put this revelation completely in writing, end quote. So here's what we have to realize. Here's what we have to understand. If Jesus is the supreme authority on heavenly matters, and thus the standard against which every other claim about heaven must be tested, where do we find his testimony? In the Bible. Only in the Bible. See, see, if you want information about what it's like to be in the army, you wouldn't talk to somebody who's never been in the army. You'd go straight to somebody who's actually served. If you want information about working at Amazon... There's your man. You know, you, you talk to somebody who's worked at Amazon. You, you, you have some kind of source who, who's been there and, and has seen what there is to see. You want to learn how to swim? You don't look for somebody who's never learned how to swim, who's just read a bunch of books, maybe watched a couple videos on how to swim. No, you find somebody who has spent hours, hundreds and hundreds of hours in the water. And if you want information on heaven... If you want information on what it's like, if you want information on what's required to be granted entry, you must go to the one who came from heaven, Jesus, and only Jesus. So the first thing that makes the testimony of Jesus where he's from and who he is, unlike any other person who gives testimony, 
He's not from or of the earth. So the first reason you must, not should, the first reason you must believe Jesus' testimony is that he who comes from heaven is above all. Because of where he's been and who he is, his authority to speak on these matters is unparalleled and uncontested. The second and third reasons are that he's both willing and able to reveal the truth about heavenly matters. So we see this in the next couple verses. Let's look at verses 32 and 33. He says, What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. I grew up in Las Vegas in the old days, and uh, those were the days when the FBI was just beginning to take uh, the mob down. You know, everybody knows uh, Las Vegas was founded by the mob. It was run by the mob for for decades. Uh, But in fact, a few years ago, I I watched a documentary on the Las Vegas mob uh, from from my childhood, that, that era, And I was actually shocked to see uh, one of my old neighbors from the neighborhood that I grew up in uh, being interviewed. Do you remember that? Uh, Yeah, he he was actually the father of one of my sister's good friends in elementary school. Um, And I knew that he worked in the FBI at the time, but I didn't know that he was one of the ones leading the case against the mob. But one of the things that, uh, that made it's so difficult for so many years for the FBI to take the mob down is that people were either unwilling or unable to testify against the mob. I mean, a lot of the time, if they were unable, it was because their life was in such great danger that they had to, uh, they had to go into either witness protection or they had to flee the country, uh, or uh, they were unable because... The mob silenced them. The mob murdered them to ensure their silence. And even if uh, someone was able in those days, uh, very, very, very few were actually willing to testify. But Jesus, John's telling us here, Jesus is both able and willing to testify. He reveals what is true because he has seen what and heard what is true. He has seen what's heard and true because he's been there. He's from there. No testimony of anyone can contradict or overshadow his testimony about heavenly matters. If he says that a man's attempts at gaining entry to heaven by merit are insufficient, then man's best attempts at gaining entry into heaven by merit are insufficient. If he says you must be born again, then you must be born again. If he says that the only way to receive eternal life is to repent and believe in him, then the only way to receive eternal life is to repent and believe in him. What he says goes. What he says is the standard of truth against which every other truth claim must be measured. Who can contradict his testimony on these things? Who would be so brave? Who would be so audacious, so foolish? There's no testimony by anyone at any time that stands against the testimony of Jesus. The religious leaders who claim that they were visited by angels. There are a couple world religions or cults that were started that way. You know, um, they claim that they were given new revelation by these angels that contradicts the testimony of Jesus. These men were either liars and angels didn't really visit them or they were telling the truth and it was 
demonic spirits that were telling them what they were told, that giving them new contradicting revelation. Think of what Paul says to the Galatians. He says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. It's from Galatians 1.8. And history actually attests to the reality, to the fact that angels, fallen angels, have actually done this. Tried to present new revelation. Tried to present testimony that contradicts the testimony of Jesus. Jesus alone is the full revelation of God. And he reveals that God is personal. He's not a mute block of wood. He's not a a stone that's been carved into the likeness of of a face or of an animal. He's unlike false gods, the idols that man makes for himself. God says in Habakkuk 2.18, What profit is the idol when its maker has carved it, or an image, a teacher of falsehood? For its maker trusts in his own handiwork when he, ha- when he fashions speechless idols. Now granted, in our day and age, most people don't have uh, a physical idol that they made out of wood or iron or gold or what have you. Although if you visit a restaurant owned by a Buddhist, you'll most likely see their mute false idols in there. Uh, but most idols in our culture don't look like that. Uh, the most common idol is simply the self, the ego, the tendency that, that every single one of us has to exalt ourselves, to exalt our will, to exalt our desires over the will and the desires of God. We make idols out of money. We make idols out of entertainment. We make idols out of things. We even make idols out of other people. People who don't have the authority of Jesus on spiritual matters. People, however, who for whatever reason uh, are more important to us than Jesus is. That's making a person into an idol. The point that John's driving home here is that Jesus' testimony is credible because he's not like the idols who are unwilling and or unable to talk and testify. And he's not like the false gods of, maybe the false god of deism, for example, who's distant and impersonal and unwilling to testify. He's not like those false gods. Nor is he like the philosophers who utter foolish speculation on spiritual matters. To believe Jesus' testimony is to believe the very word of God. To accept Jesus' testimony is true, is to accept the very testimony of the triune God. But to reject or to disbelieve Jesus' testimony is to disbelieve God, is to reject God. Worse than that, to reject Jesus' testimony is actually to slander God. When a person does not accept what Jesus says is true, they are actually slandering God. 1 John chapter 5, verse 10 says this. It says, The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his Son. And calling God a liar is to slander God. The scriptures say it's impossible for God to lie. Now what's interesting, if you look at verse 32 with me, what's interesting is uh, that it's in the present tense. The tense that John uses here, he doesn't say that Jesus came and testified 
that's past tense. He says it's current. It's in the present active tense. In other words, what John is saying here is that Jesus still, to this day, testifies to these truths. Now, again, where does he do that? In his word. In the Bible. The Bible is not an old, dead, irrelevant, outdated work of of several men. Rather, according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So the good news is that God's Word, the Bible, is still living and active. The bad news is, as John says here, no one receives his testimony. He doesn't say only a few do. He says nobody does. No one receives his testimony. Now what does that mean? It means that by nature man is hostile to what Jesus claims. By nature man is hostile to Jesus' testimony. And they are unwilling, man is unwilling by nature to believe. And yet that's immediately followed by what we see in verse 33. In verse 33, there's an indication that some do believe. But it's a reminder that if we do receive his testimony, if we do believe what he claims, it's not our own doing. It's by God's grace alone. That reminds us of what John said back in the first chapter when he was just kind of introducing what he was going to write. First chapter, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, he said, As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Jesus said, My sheep hear my voice, and they follow me. How does that happen? Where does that happen? Well, two things. The Bible is living and active, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who rose from the dead and has ascended to the right hand of the Father, is a living God. And so when you hear the word of God being preached, when you hear the gospel, those with ears to hear are actually hearing the voice of Christ. Romans 10.14, how will they then call on him in whom they have not believed, and how will they believe in him whom they have not heard? Not of whom they have not heard. The word of is not in the Greek there. That's, that's, that's something that some translators insert in there. No, the Greek literally says, how will they believe in him whom they have not heard, and how will they hear without a preacher? Friends, the purpose of Jesus' ministry was to preach the truth. God had only one son, and he made him a preacher. What did he preach? The truth. And preaching the truth as revealed in God's word is the purpose and the focus of our ministry as well. God's power, or God's word has power that I don't, that nobody does. God's word has the power to accomplish his purposes. And preaching the truth as revealed in God's word must be the focus of any successful, faithful ministry. Kids, that's why we want you in here every week. We love you, and we value you, and we want you to be exposed to God's Word because God's Word has power. I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. 
God's word has power. Because God's word has power to convert us. God's word has power to conform us to the image of Christ. God's word has power to convict us and to comfort us. It has the power that that human words of wisdom don't ever have to both inform us and to transform us. And as adults, as, as parents, we want that for ourselves, of course. But we must also want it for our kids, So the first reason that everyone must believe the testimony of Jesus is because of who he is and where he's from. The second and third reasons are because even to this very day, he's both able and willing to testify of the truth about heavenly matters. Nobody else, nobody else can make that claim. The fourth and final reason we must believe Jesus' testimony is because he's credible. Let's look at verses 34 and 35 says, for he whom God has sent speaks the words of, of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. But we should also look at verse 33. He who has received his testimony, so there are some, has set his seal to this, that God is true. See, in in first century Israel, people had what were called signet rings, and these rings would have a a unique stamp or an initial uh, or or some kind of seal on them. And when a person uh, sealed a document, when they accepted a document, they would roll it up, drip some hot wax on it, and hold uh, hold it there with the wax and press their signet ring against it, signifying their acceptance and their ownership of it. And when a person believes the testimony of Jesus, their faith is like that signet ring making a mark in the wax. So are the claims of Jesus true? They are. But the question is, do you believe them? Are you willing to stand on them? When Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, do you believe it? The way, not a way, the way. When he says, whoever believes in him, whoever believes in Jesus shall not perish but have eternal life. What about that? Do you believe that? I mean, there are plenty of people who would call themselves Christians who would give some kind of of, of consent or assent to these kinds of claims, but only to an extent. They'd say that God has other ways to bring people to heaven if he wants, apart from Jesus. Uh, One very well-known pastor uh, who, who once was interviewed by Martin Bashir, uh, said that we only know what the Bible specifically tells us. We don't know what it doesn't tell us. We don't know that God doesn't have another way to bring people to heaven that he hasn't told us about in his word. This is a well-known, well-published pastor, author, speaker. Another well-known author from the early 20th century said that there there was enough uh, Christian truth in other world religions for people to be saved in those religions while adhering to those religions. And Christians still buy his books by the truckload. These kind of statements are not only false, but they're indications of doubt and disbelief toward the testimony of Jesus. But forget about the doubters and the disbelievers. What about you. What about you? Do you believe the testimony of Jesus? Because we need to understand that when he speaks, God speaks, and it's impossible for God to lie. 
See, what John's saying here in verse 34 is that there is actually perfect harmony between what God the Father says and what God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, says. And the reason is because Jesus has a full measure, the full measure of the Holy Spirit. We don't. Nobody else does. Not, not on this side of glory. And that, that's also, by the way, the Holy Spirit is also referred to as the Spirit of Truth by John later on. But throughout Jesus' earthly life and ministry, there was perfect, unbroken communion, fellowship, and communication between the first and second persons of the Trinity, between the Father and the Son, because the Son had the fullness of the Spirit upon him. This is why Jesus' will was always perfectly aligned with the will of the Father. He was completely filled with the full the full helping, the full, full presence of the Holy Spirit. He did the Father's will at all times. He didn't sin one time. He was always in the Father's will, never once straying from the Father's will. And this is what makes Jesus' testimony credible. Not only is he speaking the very words of God, but he was sent by the Father. Look at verse 35 again. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So Jesus had the full authority of God. The full authority of God. He's one person of our triune God. But he has the full authority in himself to speak God's word and to impart the presence of the Holy Spirit to the hearts of his people, giving them ears to hear, giving them eyes to see, giving them faith to believe. See, faith in Christ isn't something that has origin in us. No, nobody receives his testimony. Rather, faith is a work, it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's his work in us. It's his work convicting us. It's his work convincing us. It's his work giving us faith to draw us to Christ. So the testimony is clear. And and this is held up at the end of, of a glorious chapter like this. That's so fitting. It's so appropriate. It gives us a chance. After all the truths that we've seen about salvation in this chapter, it gives us a chance to look back at them and to kind of hold a mirror up to our own hearts and to examine ourselves, asking ourselves, do I believe all this? And I don't just mean giving a nod and, and saying, okay, intellectually, I, I believe all this. The devil believes all this. I mean, are you willing to stand on them? And are you willing to stand for them? Are you willing to live by the truths that are revealed by Christ? Because if you believe this, you know, in the same way that maybe you believe that uh, chocolate ice cream is your favorite ice cream flavor, but other people are entitled to have their own favorite flavors, can you really say that you believe what Jesus claims? If you believe that, well, this is true for you, but it doesn't have to be true for somebody else. That kind of belief, that kind of faith, the faith of the people at the end of chapter 2 who had a very shallow belief, a very shallow faith. No, the kind of belief, the kind of faith that I'm talking about is the kind of faith that we've been talking about throughout this chapter. Biblical faith, saving faith, faith that changes, faith that makes you realize that following Christ is worth any sacrifice. And biblical saving faith is always characterized by obedience. Look at verse 36 with me. 
says, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't say he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not believe in the Son will not see life. No, he says he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey, not believe, but he he who does not obey the Son will not see life. So do you see the way that, that belief or faith on one hand is paralleled by obedience unto Jesus? See, a faith that isn't obedient Faith is not a biblical faith, is not a saving faith. I'm not talking about uh, obeying him perfectly. I'm not saying that you, you become sinless. What I'm saying is, do you even desire to be sinless? See, that's really the difference. Not that you will be sinless by believing in Jesus Christ, because you won't. But you should desire it more and more. So what we see here is that the way that a person responds to Jesus' testimony, who he is, what he came to do, what's necessary for salvation, determines the eternal destiny of every single person on the face of the earth. There are only two options. There is not a third option option. There's not a hidden door somewhere for someone to get into heaven. There are only two options. You either believe in Jesus and you have eternal life, or you do not obey Jesus and you are under God's wrath. Those are the only two options. There is no in-between. There's no part one, part, you know, part, part of one, part the other. No, this is a black and white issue. You either have eternal life or you have God's wrath upon you. As A.W. Pink notes, quote, how it behooves every reader to seriously and honestly face the question, to which class do I belong? To those who believe on the Son or to those who do not believe on the Son? Friends, if there is one conviction that we should all have as we conclude our study of John chapter 3. It's this, that Jesus Christ alone is worthy of our worship, that Jesus Christ alone should be our greatest treasure, that Jesus Christ alone should be our greatest pursuit, that honoring him and glorifying him is the greatest and the highest pursuit that a man or a woman can have in life. You can aspire to be king of the world, president of the United States. That's a lower aspiration than following after Jesus. He should be our greatest aspiration. He should be our greatest desire. He must be our greatest treasure because that's what he's worthy of. If you live your life as if God doesn't exist, if you live by by your rules exclusively, giving him nothing more than maybe a little bit of intellectual assent, maybe you give him one day a week, but six days out of the week you forget all about him. Maybe you, you even give him two or three Sundays per month, but really it's just a checklist. I have to confess 
as your pastor and that out of my pastoral love for you that I am deeply concerned about the state of your soul. I'm deeply concerned about people who give Jesus a little bit of assent but don't show any evidence of really giving their life to Jesus. It is my deepest prayer, friends. It is my deepest hope, my deepest prayer, as we come to the conclusion of this amazing chapter, this glorious chapter, that you, that all of you, would believe Christ's testimony, that yours would be a biblical faith, an obedient faith, biblical saving faith. Jesus alone is worthy of that faith. Jesus alone is worthy of all of our faith our greatest hope, our greatest confidence before God because of who he is, because of where he's been, and because of who sent him. He alone, his testimony alone, is the standard of truth about salvation. We must believe it. And if we believe what he says, then we must bring this news to those who are perishing. There's not another option. How else are they going to hear it? They are not going to just walk into church. People who aren't Christians don't just come to church. This is the Great Commission. This is what it's all about. Receiving the love of Christ and loving our neighbor in return. Sharing the gospel. Loving them enough to share the gospel with them in order that they too would believe the testimony of Christ. Let's pray. Our most gracious Father, we thank you that by your grace you have opened the eyes of our hearts to behold Christ and to believe in him, to believe his testimony. And to do more than just give intellectual assent. But you have given us, you have filled us with your spirit in order that we would believe and obey. So we thank you for that. And we confess before you that whatever obedience we have is so small. And were it not for your grace, surely we would all perish if our salvation depended in even the slightest bit on us, surely we would all perish. What a great gift it is, Father, that you would send Jesus to testify to the truth, to tell us what's necessary for salvation, to tell us, to reveal to us you, your will, your ways, what pleases you, what doesn't please you. And we pray that by the power of the Spirit working in us, that we would be broken more and more away from the old ways in which we walked. Give us a desire, a stronger desire to walk in the light. Give us a stronger desire to be freed from sin. Give us a stronger desire to please and honor you. And give us a stronger desire to see our friends and family and neighbors who don't know you 
come to know you, come to believe the testimony of Christ, that they too, that they too would be granted entry into heaven by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.